welcome to my mommy's podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Blue Blocks. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X. They create stylish and effective blue light blocking glasses that are used for any time of day. So there's several different options. Their blue light lens is a clear lens that's designed for people who work under artificial light during the day, but they don't maybe want to look like they're wearing orange glasses. This one is designed to target the light that creates digital eye eye strain, migraines, headaches, and more, but it's their most gentle, easy, inconspicuous lens. Their summer glow lens steps it up a notch, and this is great for people who are exposed to intense artificial light all day, or who as a result suffer from migraines, anxiety, depression, or seasonal affective disorder. And this blocks the light, the spectrums of light that contribute to those conditions. An even further step up for better sleep, their sleep lens is a complete blue and green light blocking full red lens. And the idea is to use this after the sun goes down. So when the sun goes down, the red glasses go on. And the studies are showing that by blocking blue light, you can increase your melatonin production and improve sleep. And I know I've seen this change in my sleep tracking, as have many other people who have made that adjustment. And lastly, if you aren't able to create a perfectly dark sleep environment, their blackout sleep mask is the next best thing. It blocks 100% of light while staying comfortable and easy to sleep in. As a listener of this podcast, you can save 15% on any Blue Blocks products uh, by using the code wellnessmama. So to get that deal, go to blueblocks.com forward slash wellnessmama. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com forward slash wellnessmama and use the code wellnessmama to save 15%. This podcast is brought to you by Gaia Herbs, and in particular, their black elderberry syrup. I have been a big fan of elderberry syrup for years, and theirs is the best pre-made one I have ever found. So unless you wanna make your own, I highly recommend using Gaia's formula. You can experience for yourself why it's America's favorite black elderberry syrup. It is the number one selling black elderberry in the US. And this time of year, it's a medicine cabinet staple and immune season essential. Elderberry will help your family feel well and this delicious elixir kids and children both like. The Gaia formula is certified organic and contains 14.5 grams of elderberries in a single teaspoon, so it's highly potent. It's made with only four clean whole food ingredients and of course it's vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, and soy-free, making it safe for most people. Black elderberry syrup is considered safe for the whole family, uh, and it's formulated to be safe for adults and children one year of age and older. You can save big on Gaia Herbs, right, as a listener of this podcast, by going to Gaia Herbs website and using the code wellnessmama, all one word, at checkout to save 20%. So again, GaiaHerbs.com forward slash wellnessmama. Make sure to use the code wellnessmama to save 20%. Hello, and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com, and this episode is all about why we need meat and how it can actually be good for the planet as well. It'll be maybe a little bit controversial, but I think you'll really enjoy this one. Anya Farinold, I'm hoping I'm saying her name right, is the co-founder and CEO of Belcampo. Belcampo operates a 27,000-acre organic farmland in California and processes its own livestock for sale in its own butcher shops and restaurants. Anya has two decades of leadership and entrepreneur experience in high-quality organic and premium foods, and her list of accomplishments is long and impressive. She has been recognized as one of Inc. Magazine's 100 Female Founders, 
one of the 40 under 40 by Food and Wine. She was named a Nifty 50 by the New York Times and has been profiled in the New Yorker, served as a regular judge on Iron Chef America since 2009, and has a cookbook called Home Cooked, which was released in 2016. And we're going to go really deep on this topic today and talk about how the human body needs meat and how it can regenerate our planet when it's grown and cared for properly. So let's jump into this episode. Anya, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you today because I think you have such an amazing and unique set of knowledge around a topic that is increasingly important right now. And that is the role of meat in both animal wellness, environmental wellness, and human wellness. And I know we can go deep on so many areas related to this, but to start, I want to give people just uh, a broad level of just how important this is and how animal wellness and human wellness are so connected. You know, I think about it as these are animals that we share, you know, 99% of our DNA with, right? So on a genetic level, we're very aligned. So it's intuitive to me that any kind of environmental impacts that make animals gain weight extremely rapidly that then we eat, we'd want to be extra cautious about, right? The way that animals are raised right now is effectively an obesogenic environment. So they're put in a place where they're under stress, they're fed a maladaptive diet that causes them to be inflamed and gain weight really quickly. And it's actually basically an extreme inflammatory and heightened cortisol response. So they're put in areas without access to natural light, no social connection, competition for resources, and then uh, really given a lot of antibiotics to suppress you know, their body's response of sickness to these inflammatory conditions. And that actually creates obesity. So it, you know, chicken growing in that environment can reach the optimal weight of two and a half pounds in, in just over two weeks uh, compared to in a natural environment like at our farm, and that's at uh, eight to 10 weeks, right? So weight gain at four times the speed. So just thinking about the human connection, it's like, well, you share a lot of your DNA with this animal. You also functionally are the same. You know, it's not like an earthworm where your digestive system is actually quite different. You know, the way that a chicken digests is quite similar. They need a microbiome. They, you know, they have a circadian clock. Like there's a lot of similarities to how we function. I, I think there's a need for people to be extra attentive to the conditions that the animals are raised in simply because our, our whole body and, and digestive system is, is aligned with how they function. So for us to be well, it makes sense that we're going to want to eat animals that have been raised in a way that's well and healthy with a normal weight gain and, and, and normal functioning and natural environment. That makes perfect sense. And I think um, that's something pretty much everybody across the board can agree on. I think it's really important in the nutrition world because it can get so uh, controversial and so polarizing. People tend to focus on the little things we disagree on, but I think most people would agree that we should treat animals well and in line with their natural biology, whether we eat meat or we don't. I think that's a really important point. And I don't think you know anybody's in favor of treating animals poorly or a lot of the feedlot situations, but I think also people maybe don't realize just how drastically the way that we raise animals has changed, even only in the last few decades, from what I understand. Is that right? Like, have we really changed our food supply so quickly? Radically. And, and you know, Katie, if it doesn't say something very specific on it about how it's raised or have the actual name of a farm that you can Google and is the name of a farm, not just like a packing house <laughs> or a, you know, a facility that cuts up meat and wraps it, that's called a farm, right? 
unless it's really very different and costs more and has a lot of different claims on it, it is absolutely commodity meat that's raised in a feedlot. That's the biggest takeaway. You're right. People understand intuitively animal wellness and human wellness are connected. That makes sense, right? That's just like a no-brainer, not only for putting it in your body, but also people living near animal confinement feeding operations have heightened risk of low birth weight, higher miscarriage rate, higher endocrine-related disorders, including cancers, right? So it's like it's a no-brainer. Animal wellness, human wellness connected. But then people say, oh, you know, well, I buy from a really good grocery store. Well, that means nothing. Right. I buy from I, or I go to a I go to a restaurant like I only eat meat at expensive restaurants also means nothing. So you have to be extremely activist as a consumer to ensure that you're getting meat. That's not the status quo. If it's not stated very clearly, I can guarantee it's not just happening that that supermarket or that restaurant is buying better quality meat. It's not. That makes sense. And I, oh, I have so many follow-up questions we're going to go deep on. But first of all, if people are trying to be conscious consumers here, are there is there any regulation on these labels? So I think that's a great tip of look and make sure it's a verifiable farm and that you can find out about the practices. But do any of these other labels actually mean anything? So the labels mean something, words mean nothing. So, you know, every word is regulated. For Belcampo too, for my company, anytime we put any word on a package, like keto-friendly or free-range or anything, I have to write a letter to the government that explains why. But that letter to the government, I mean, Tyson has natural on all of their products. And they're absolutely, feed, I mean, confinement, the, the worst of the confinement operators is Tyson. Foster Farms, also a large-scale confinement operation, says natural all of their products. So the regulation of the words, they can say, I don't know what case they're making, but it's like, hey, we're not feeding them plastic. Great, it's natural. You know, so the, the, most of the words are totally unregulated. And that's the problem for consumers. You know, keep in mind that the USDA is run by an ex-executive from Purdue, right, from Purdue, massive, massive agribusiness, um, definitely not an animal wellness company, right? So there's just vested interests um, in keeping consumers in the dark and to make consumers settle. And that's what you're being asked to do in America. It's like settle for unsafe meat. Okay, guys? Hey, moms, settle for a product that you have to cook to the point of killing all the pathogens on it. That's what they're asking you to do. Settle for a product that's probably dirty, but we're going to tell you to cook it to 165 degrees. So your kids actually are kind of be like, well, I don't really like this, right? Because it's overcooked and dry. And you need to settle for that, though, because we're not going to guarantee that it's clean product. That's what you're being asked to do. So, you know, you think about the labeling context, it, it, it's, a, it's a really, um, it's a situation that's stacked against you as a consumer. So when you're looking for a label, you need to look beyond a word like natural or free range, and you need to look beyond, um, you know, what I consider claims and look for real certifications. Certified organic is a good place to start, but it doesn't have anything to do with free range. For free range, that's where I say you need to look for an actual name of a farm that you can verify. Um, or of a group of farms that you can verify. Uh, so that would be, there was actually not really any national players beyond our company that, that I mean, there's probably some, some specifics in like lamb and poultry that do ship nationwide. But in your local grocery store, you will find that many grocers are trying to stock at least one option of that like actual from a farm uh, and, a, and a greater level of traceability and a greater commitment to, to animal wellness. 
That makes sense. And I, I think people have maybe heard of the idea of hormones being in meat and dairy products, for instance. Is that a concern to actually worry about? Like, are these not, are animals that are not raised well, do they have different levels of either artificial or natural hormones that we should be worried about? So, great question about hormones. In the U.S., it's actually illegal to use hormones in the production of chicken or pork. So when you see a pork chop for sale, it says no hormones. That just means they're complying with the basic law in the U.S. The question of why don't they allow the use of hormones isn't that the USDA is being particularly health conscious. It's just that the hormones do not create as effective and rapid a weight gain as antibiotics do. Antibiotics do a better job at causing rapid weight gain than hormones do in pigs or chickens. So we don't use hormones in the U.S. in those two products simply because antibiotics, tetracycline and amoxicillin, are more efficient. In beef, beef do not respond as well to uh, antibiotics for weight gain as they do to hormones. So beef are allowed to use hormones. So producers do use hormones to cause rapid weight gain in beef. So the idea that we get... I feel like the hormones are kind of like a red herring where a lot of producers are getting away with saying, oh, it's, it's no, hor- no growth hormones and no prophylactic antibiotics, right? That's a claim you see in a lot of mass market protein, right? You've seen that in the grocery store, no hormones, no, no extra antibiotics. But the, the truth is hormones aren't allowed because they're not efficient. And you might say you're only using antibiotics when the animals are sick. Well, guess what? If you're in a hoop house with you know, that's, that's 300 feet long with 19,000 other chickens, you're at risk of dying of sickness every day because of the toxicity of the environment that you're in. So to give animals antibiotics in that is actually necessary for them to stay alive. So the claim that they're not using antibiotics, they only use them when the animals are sick. Well, there's veterinarians on payroll that are able to say constantly, yes, all these animals are sick or at risk of getting sick because of the toxicity of the environment. So that's where those claims of antibiotic and hormone-free, they're both meaningless. And that's why, you know, the thing that kills me, it's like, as consumers, if you see a mass market meat brand all of a sudden have a bunch of new claims, but the price is the same and the product looks the same, you better call BS on that, right? It's actually not any meaningful change. Changes in the production system of animals are typically cause the product to grow more slowly and therefore become much more costly. So when you see a Tyson or a big player changing their claims, but the price point stays the same, you're getting ripped off. I mean, you're really actually being sold uh, false goods. Wow. And I think that's such an important point too you brought up about antibiotics because um, it really makes me wonder. I know we've seen all these news stories about overuse of antibiotics in humans and how this is leading to superbug, superbugs and antibiotic resistant bugs. And then you mentioned that these antibiotics help animals gain weight. So is there any concern with this transferring to humans? Is this going to cause humans to gain weight and have antibiotic resistance? That's it, Katie. That's what I, yeah. I mean, so the antibiotic resistance is freaky, right? Because, I mean, you can die of staph, right? These are serious, serious illnesses. And now people are getting the heaviest use antibiotics for pretty minor sicknesses because antibiotics are so prevalent in animal agriculture and then they get into the water. I mean, they find tetracycline in the drinking water uh, three to five miles away from CAFOs in the drinking water, right? Because there's so much antibiotics used in those animal farms. Now, for your own use, and this is definitely, I'm not a, um, a, a nutrition expert, or a, um, but I know from animal agriculture that, that antibiotics increase weight gain by a factor of two, at least. 
And this has been shown in humans as well in some very interesting studies that were done in the military um, in, in, right after World War II, a bunch of studies that showed that um, just regular prescription of amoxicillin and tetracycline in low doses um, made uh, young men gain weight much more quickly. So it's got the same effect on humans. And it, it has something to do, what I've heard from people who know more than me, but I encourage you to do your own research on this, it has something to do with suppressing your microbiome. So if effectively, you become less efficient at dig or digesting your food, right? Um, so you're without a complex microbiome, um, which gets suppressed by your antibiotics, uh, you actually um, convert, uh, convert your food into adipose tissue more quickly. So you gain more fat and, and, and more weight. So that's the, that's the short story, but it's actually got a, sim a similar effect on humans, right? I mean, it's been shown in humans in the 1940s in those studies. As a, as a mom, I'd say if you can avoid antibiotics for your kids, absolutely do, because it's definitely connected to human weight gain, and it also has a three-month tail. So even a regular, like you got a sinus infection, you get a dose of whatever little thing they give you, that six-day package, that's got a three-month tail on your microbiome. Um, in terms of how long your system, the minimal amount of time your, your system is going to be suppressed through the antibiotic course. That makes sense. And okay, so there's two things I want to make sure that we cover. We're going to get to the environmental side of this. So if you guys are interested in that, definitely keep listening. But first, I want to talk about the role of meat in human health, because I think a lot of people realizing all these problems with feedlots and realizing how horribly animals are treated, understandably think, okay, well, maybe I should just not eat meat and then that's going to be better for me. Um, but I think in doing that, we absolutely throw the baby out with the bathwater. So let's talk about the role of meat and why it is so important, especially for a lot of the listeners who are moms, who are pregnant or nursing or have small children. Yeah. I mean, there's amazing data about this. The actual, the, the number one thing as, as, a, as for me as a mom that just blew my mind was that a mother's access to animal protein, to high quality animal protein is a higher indicator of her child's IQ than her, the country that she lives in economic index. Okay, so I'm going to re-say that because it's stunning. This is out of UC Santa Barbara. So a mother's access to a DHA and omega-3 rich high quality animal proteins is a greater indicator of her child's performance on standardized tests than the country that they live in, like Sweden versus Ethiopia. Is that crazy? <laughs> right? So to think of like what's, what's the importance for your health, the things that were stunning to me are just around, you know, for, for women, um, if you are a vegetarian from age uh, early puberty, from 12 till when you have children in your 30s, you will actually pass essential amino acids that you can only get from meats onto your fetus. Your body has evolved to hold onto those from early childhood for eventual childbearing. So, I mean, that, those two facts to me, also amazing, I mean, on the motherhood thing, this is, I'll, I'll send you this study, it's incredible, or I can give it to you to link for your listeners, again, from, from this one uh, gentleman at UC Santa Barbara, who showed, again, major intelligence correlation uh, with young children and the quality of their mother's breast milk um, with high, being high in omega-3s and DHAs. So these are really impressive, amazing, you know, data that connects. It's primarily around um, essential aspects of animal proteins that then contribute to brain growth and brain health. And that's really for you as a mom, right? And for, for us as mothers thinking about how do we facilitate healthy, happy, balanced, smart kids. 
And animal protein appears to be a, a really crucial part of that. Um, and, and really the essential, um, the essential aminos and, and fatty acids from animal proteins. That's like data is locked down on that subject that you're, you're going to be doing a disfavor to your child by being a vegan or vegetarian um, around your childbearing years. In terms of your own nutrition, I mean, for me, it's just kind of basic that, that animal protein is extremely healthy. Uh, it's very nutrient dense. Uh, and it gives you a wide range of essential amino acids. And that's kind of all I can say on it. You know, it's also demonstrated that there's animal protein that's good for you and animal protein that's not so good for you. And the better and slower the animals are growing, and by slower I mean just like the natural rate of growth of muscle mass, the healthier that muscle mass is going to be for you as a consumer. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm an active, avid, um, you know, cook and mom and all those good things. So I encourage you to, to, to do research on this with people who know more than me. We were discussing Chris Kresser as a great resource on this as well. But um, animal protein is a really high quality, excellent source of lots of different nutrition for you. Absolutely. And my background is in nutrition and just realizing, especially like you said, in those childbearing years, um, your body's going to do everything in its power to pass on the nutrients that your growing baby needs, even at the expense of your own body. So if you're not getting those nutrients, you're also putting yourself at risk. And, and I think this is like this topic that you bring awareness to is such an important one for our time because it is very much about quality and amount and sourcing. It's not just about getting the meat and getting the protein. And like I said in the beginning, I think we can all agree that we don't want to treat animals poorly. We don't want animals in feedlots, nor do we want to feed that kind of meat to ourselves or to our children. But realizing there is a biological need for these amino acids, and it's extremely difficult, maybe nearly impossible, but extremely difficult to get enough of those proteins during pregnancy and during nursing and as a developing child, and you have to be extremely, extremely careful if you're even trying to do that, whereas it's so much easier if you can just find high quality meat. Oh, yeah. I mean, the number of women who I've talked to who were vegetarian couldn't conceive and then started eating meat and got pregnant like a month later. I mean, that's like, I've heard that story now so many times. It's like, yeah, that's, that's your body saying, yeah, you don't have the micronutrient base to make this happen, lady. You know, and, and then they start eating meat, even just minimal amounts of like bone broth. Right. And we'll conceive. So there, the, the, around the, the, the mojo around your fertility, your ability to, to raise and raise healthy children without completely. You bring up a good point, Katie. There's a way to do it with we gut your own body and lose your teeth and lose your hair. Right. But to do that um, with the way that you say healthy and sound animal proteins just appear to be crucial. And another piece, too, I want to call out. It's not just protein, period. Right. Something I learned recently, which is just amazing to me, is. Your ability to extract um, glutathione, which is, you know, the body's master amino acid, you probably know a lot more about this than me, Katie, but glutathione is super crucial for wellness and health, and it's essential, and it's one of the reasons we eat meat, right? Now, your ability to, to, to metabolize that glutathione in your lean muscle that you eat is actually, the, there's a rate-limiting component in, in um, that, in your ability to digest, which has to do with the availability of collagen protein. So if you're just eating lean muscle and not eating connective tissue like stews and braises and bone broth, you're not actually going to be able to extract the nutrition, right? So there's another type of like, I, I call it almost like it's a form of vegetarianism where you're like, ah, oh, I'm suffering, so I'm going to start eating just like boneless, skinless chicken breast. Well, that's actually not doing your body any favors. 
So if we're talking about eating meat, we're talking about also getting access to the other mojo in meat, which is bone broth, braises, connective tissue. I'm not sure if marrow and liver are your jam, but it'd be amazing if they could be, right? But I think the base is at least getting some collagen-rich, connective tissue-rich foods. Now, you can also take collagen powder, which is typically made from animal hides. So collagen powder that's available commercially is extracted from hides. You know, it's an animal source product. In general, stuff that you're eating in its natural form is easier for your body to integrate and metabolize. So I would absolutely recommend, a, you know, a mix if you're looking, especially at fertility, child rearing, like collagen rich bone broth or soups, plus your chicken breast or your New York steak or your pork loin or whatever you're going to have, which is your classic like lean striated muscle. For me too, after my second child, I went on a much more intense bone broth regimen than I'd ever done before. Um, because we actually opened up a Belcampo restaurant next to my office and I started to drink about a quart of bone broth a day because I have a policy in my company. Every employee gets a big cup of bone broth for free every day. So I'm like, well, I'm going to sign up for that. So I had been producing it more for my audience, less for myself, started to drink it a quart a day and massive changes in terms of like my uh, breast tissue coming back after breastfeeding two kids in four years, I had gone down two cup sizes and they just that collagen rich within a month and a half, I was back to my pre-baby one cup size, um, despite, you know, that usual kind of like weight loss, weight fluctuation, your whole body is moving around. But I also started to get just much more, um, much like greater improvements in my skin tone, uh, you know, a, a nice like plumpness in my face that despite, you know, slowly losing the baby weight. So that collagen as well, I think of it as like a beauty juice too, because it kind of gets, it's great for your hair, skin, nails, breasts, um, especially with all the kind of like the body wrecking that happens through childbirth and, and breastfeeding. Absolutely. And I think that's another important distinction that we don't talk about enough in the modern world is that for most of history, we ate all of the animal. We used every bit of it. We made bone broth like you talked about. And that's something that's changed. We didn't for most of history, eat just ground beef and chicken breast. Uh, I love the book, Deep Nutrition. She really talks about this and just how important getting that variety and especially those different types of amino acids that are in broth are to balancing out the muscle meat. And I think that is, you're right, another piece that people really, really miss. And also on the note of quality, it's important to note when people start quoting these studies about why meat not, might not be good for health or people seeing these changes, these studies are not separating at all based on quality of meat. And they're almost always using just conventional meat, which we've just explained has all of these bad things in it that people tend to think like, oh, well, I can't see the hormones. I can't see the antibiotics. So I'm not going to worry about it. And it always kind of boggles my mind because people will take a Motrin, which is this tiny pill and expect it to have this huge effect on them and then ignore that, that same amount of something in meat and then think it's going to be totally fine. And so I think that quality is the the missing key when it comes to that. To shift gears a little bit, though, I think it's really important that we get into the environmental side as well, because I'm sure you're even more aware than I am, all the press and publicity lately um, blaming meat practices for climate change and for a lot of things going on in the world and saying that um, raising animals for food is really bad for the climate and bad for the environment. And I personally take a much different view, um, knowing the little bit I know about regenerative agriculture and the role of animals in permaculture and in our entire ecosystem. But I know you can speak to this much more from a firsthand perspective and from a place of knowledge. So let's talk about the role of raising animals in environmental stewardship. So the 
data that companies like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat are putting out about carbon impact of beef is 100% correct, right? Conventional beef is terrible for the environment. I want to be clear that I'm not contradicting their data at all. What they're not telling you as a consumer is that there's a different way of producing beef and all ruminant species and all types of livestock that is carbon impact positive. And it is the way that beef and other ruminants have been produced for millennia. And that is raising them with regenerative practices. So our farm at Bel Campo, we farm 27,000 acres in, in Northern California. And our farm has been third party documented as carbon impact positive, which means that our practices actually increase the density of carbon in the soil. And to get to how that's different from a conventional system, it's, it's kind of a long story, but I'll say in, in short, conventional beef, you're feeding animals crops that you've raised by tilling the soil, so digging it up, planting very nutrient-dense food like corn or wheat, and then using a lot of nitrogen and how it's raised and harvesting it and tilling it up, bringing it to a cow that's on cement in great density, like, you know, hundreds of animals in these feedlots, and then feeding it to it in confinement, along with a lot of other honest crap like, you know, Skittles, candy, and sawdust, and plastic shavings are all used in conventional cow feed. You can Google that stuff and see about it. So that's the conventional system. They're not on grass, near grass, eating grass for most of their lives. Although the, the calf, right when it's born, some, many of those cow-calf operations are on um, under or grass. So for the first six months, they might be outdoors, but then for the remainder of their life, they're in confinement in this fast-paced animal weight gain context. That animal weight gain is, is based off of a really nitrogen-intensive and resource-intensive crop. The only reason why it makes sense to feed such a costly food to cows is because of the subsidy system. So these crops are subsidized, so effectively we're able to feed expensive food to cheap meat. That's it. And it's a total fake economy. Our system, along with many other regenerative small-scale farms in, in, in America and around the world, we're raising beef on, on perennial pastures. So we've got grasslands with hundreds of species of grass. We don't till them. We never disrupt the soil. These grasses have root systems that are 30 feet deep. Okay, That's how they sequester carbon. The animals are low density um, and they're moved from pasture to pasture. So they don't spend a whole season on one pasture getting it muddy right, and, and turning it into basically just kind of dirt. We move them from pasture to pasture. They eat a little bit. They move to another pasture. And then animals are brought back to that first pasture after a, a break of two or three weeks to recover. So that's more like mimicking a typical migratory pattern of how ruminants evolved. Right? They would evolve by walking through a field and eating some stuff and then keep on moving. They drop a little bit of their manure. They till the earth a bit with their hooves. But you're not talking about a thousand beef all dumping manure onto an acre and then uh, it being left kind of devastated, right? So you're talking about a low density use. So we mimic a natural migratory pattern for the animals and we do it on perennial pastures. And we're not the only ones doing this. I mean, literally there's hundreds of regenerative uh, livestock ranches around the U.S. 
and they're all practicing this, and they're all carbon positive. There's just not very many of them. We're less than 1% of the beef supply system. But we're actually, we've been tracking our carbon in our own farm using a third-party uh, research group for five years now. And in that five-year period, we have increased the carbon density in our own soil, which is just something beyond, you know, beyond proud of. That's amazing. And that has such a long-term environmental positive effect as well. And I think that's another just important correlation for people to understand is just like the quality of the meat matters so much when we're going to consume it. It also really, really matters for the planet. And to compare regenerative agriculture and how beef is raised in that environment with feedlot, it's like you're comparing entirely separate, like they're not even on the same playing field. Uh, Katie, it's like, it's like saying, oh, for me to get to work um, is X pounds of carbon. Sometimes I take a helicopter to work and sometimes I walk to work, but it's X carbon. Like that's how it's like conflating two totally different things with totally different impacts, helicopter versus walking. That's the feedlot beef versus conventional versus, you know, the regenerative beef. And it, it, it kind of kills me when I see these stats and I see people just bashing, you know, meat, you're killing the environment. And then all those little pictures of the gallons of water. And I'm like, damn, we don't use one gallon of water. Like we have like rain <laughs> that fills catchment ponds. I mean, there's some stock water, but you know, you're, it's so minimal. Um, there's actually not even stock water. Usually the animals are just drinking out of puddles or out there in, in the fields, you know, and streams, right? So it, it's such a different environment. It kind of drives me crazy, but I'm happy. Like I'm happy because I see people starting to pay attention. I, I feel like the whole movement of, of the alternative, like the fake meat, the highly processed vegetable meats, those guys are, are pulling aside the curtain a little bit and they're showing consumers just how bad things are. So I feel super grateful for those products existing. I feel like we're kind of fighting the same fight in some ways, you know, but I think that many of those consumers for the first time have their like the light switch gets flipped on where they're like, wait, what the heck is going on? What am I eating? You know, and they just really hadn't thought because they're like, well, I shop at X grocery store. It's not the worst grocery store. So they probably use better stuff and they don't realize that it's all bad unless it's really expensive and really different, you know? So that, that's a, it's been useful, I think, in the broader education. It's really not true about all beef, however. Yeah, such an important distinction. And I'm glad you brought up the, these alternative meats that have gotten so popular and certainly have been extremely highly funded and publicized because to me, that brings up two things. You're right, it's, it's shedding light on some really important stuff that we definitely all need to be aware of and to kind of unite around fixing both for ourselves and for the planet. But also it always is ironic to me of like, if humans didn't have a need for meat, if we were supposed to be vegetarian, why do we need to spend so much time and money trying to make plants taste exactly like meat? If we don't have a need for that, I think, you know, it's, it's an indicator that we actually are hardwired to need these kind of proteins, especially at certain phases of life, like we talked about, or for kids when they're growing. And like I said, multiple times, it goes back to at the end of the day for both the planet, for ourselves, for all of it, for the animals, certainly it's all about the quality and how they're raised. And so I love that there are practices like you guys that are really revolutionizing and getting back to kind of how it's always supposed to have been done when it comes to that. Yeah, that's a great perspective that the, that the beyond meets and impossibles exist because there is that kind of craving. I too, I'm really perplexed by the need to make vegetables look like meat and the kind of genetically modified, hyper-complicated processes that go into them. It seems like every time there's kind of like radical innovation and something that is sort of too good to be true and fake and magical. It's like, well, margarine and asbestos and like there's lots of like oleoester. What was that crazy fat that you couldn't digest? And so you could eat all the chips you wanted. You know, those things, they tend to 
they tend to have a pretty short life cycle. Um, but it is, it is interesting the amount of, like, it's appealed to a, a, almost like it's captured the, the popular imagination in certain ways because the idea as well that you can kind of have limitless meat kind of for free with no need for processing an animal or the responsibility of an animal dying, you know, those are, that's kind of like a, a that would be an amazing solution were it not as, um, as fraught with, with challenges as it really is. Exactly. This podcast is sponsored by Blue Blocks. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X. They create stylish and effective blue light blocking glasses that are used for any time of day. So there's several different options. Their blue light lens is a clear lens that's designed for people who work under artificial light during the day, but they don't maybe wanna look like they're wearing orange glasses. This one is designed to target the light that creates digital eye, eye strain, migraines, headaches, and more, but it's their most gentle, easy, inconspicuous lens. Their summer glow lens steps it up a notch, and this is great for people who are exposed to intense artificial light all day, or who as a result suffer from migraines, anxiety, depression, or seasonal ad- affective disorder. And this blocks the light, the spectrums of light that contribute to those conditions. An even further step up for better sleep, their sleep lens is a complete blue and green light blocking full red lens and the idea is to use this after the sun goes down so when the sun goes down the red glasses go on and the studies are showing that by blocking blue light you can increase your melatonin production and improve sleep and i know i've seen this change in my sleep tracking as have many other people who have made that adjustment and lastly if you aren't able to create a perfectly dark sleep environment their blackout sleep mask is the next best thing. It blocks 100% of light while staying comfortable and easy to sleep in. As a listener of this podcast, you can save 15% on any Blue Blocks products uh, by using the code wellnessmama. So to get that deal, go to blueblocks.com forward slash wellnessmama. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com forward slash wellnessmama and use the code wellnessmama to save 15%. This podcast is brought to you by Gaia Herbs, and in particular, their black elderberry syrup. I have been a big fan of elderberry syrup for years, and theirs is the best pre-made one I have ever found. So unless you wanna make your own, I highly recommend using Gaia's formula. You can experience for yourself why it's America's favorite black elderberry syrup. It is the number one selling black elderberry in the US. And this time of year, it's a medicine cabinet staple and immune season essential. Elderberry will help your family feel well and this delicious elixir kids and children both like. The Gaia formula is certified organic and contains 14.5 grams of elderberries in a single teaspoon, so it's highly potent. It's made with only four clean whole food ingredients and of course it's vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, and soy-free, making it safe for most people. Black elderberry syrup is considered safe for the whole family uh, and it's formulated to be safe for adults and children one year of age and older. You can save big on Gaia Herbs right, as a listener of this podcast by going to Gaia Herbs website and using the code wellnessmama, all one word, at checkout to save 20%. So again, GaiaHerbs.com forward slash wellnessmama. Make sure to use the code wellnessmama to save 20%. And I want to talk about the kid aspect a little bit more as well, because like from nutritionally, kids have a higher protein demand per pound of body weight than adults do. And especially during phases like when they're in puberty or any kind of growth spurt, they need 
uh, a certain amount of protein, and that's really, really vital for them to function optimally. Um, I also know as a mom, and I'm sure you can probably relate to this, um, kids don't always necessarily want to eat what you want them to eat. And so realizing this and realizing that like this is really important for our kids, do you have any tricks as a mom or as a business owner in this industry for helping kids be introduced to these kind of things and, and getting them to like it? Because like in my house, for instance, bone broth is pretty much the first food for all my babies with the understanding that babies naturally have a semi-permeable gut. And this is really important actually, because when babies are breastfeeding, that's how a lot of stuff can transfer through and they can develop their immune system this way. And it's a wonderful design, but because of that, you maybe don't want to put some foods that can be slightly inflammatory as the first other food they get in their gut. And so I always start with bone broth because of its ability to soothe the gut. Um, But I'm curious how you have integrated and when meat products with your kids and if you have any tips for that. So I'm pretty radical on this front. I mean, I, I, raw meat was actually my, both my kids' first food along with bone broth. And my kids to this day love raw meat and love marrow and love liver and heart. And it, it has to do with availability. But I also think, Katie, it has to do with it tasting really good. You know, I don't think my kids would like liver if they were eating, I don't know where, what kind of liver you can buy at the standard American grocery store, but it can't be very good. It's probably old and frozen. So Getting really delicious, fresh product is the first thing. I just, I think that the kids have a natural ability to, to taste health. You know, they're more in touch. I think in pregnancy, we as women have a little bit of that, that taste where we start to taste what's, what, what we need. You know, and cravings, we talk about cravings as like a sort of crazy thing. But cravings, we actually, if we're really eating intuitively, we should have them all the time. And they're very healthy for us, you know, and kids have those cravings too. Um, and, and they actually listen to them more, you know, like that demand that they have where they're like, well, I'm really hungry right now. I really want to eat a lot of that one thing. Like they, they're more in touch with that. So my approach with my kids has been to really make them delicious food and super high quality proteins. And, you know, my daughter at seven can eat like six drumsticks. We will go through, we eat a lot of meat. And she loves it. My son is a little bit more of a carb lover, um, but and he he but also will just eat every type of meat. And I I don't have a good. It's so it's it's such a battlefield on on this. You know, you don't want to judge other people's choices. And also, there's just I live in a in a very um, like luxurious context where I have access to this really high quality protein. You know, so I don't know what I would do if I didn't have that. But my, in my own home for my kids, um, my major goals as a mom are to cook them breakfast every day and to cook them dinner sort of most days and to have their lunch be homemade leftovers. That's what I try to get to. Um, and I achieve it. You know, we have like three things that we make for breakfast and, and it's always from scratch. Um, and then dinners, we do a lot of different things. I also have no refined carbohydrate snacks around my house at all. And I, I found, and I also don't, this is going to sound a little crazy, but I don't carry snacks for my kids. You know, in a pinch, we'll throw a banana or an apple in a bag, you know, like all that, but I don't carry boxes of raisins or bags of goldfish or any, or bags of Cheerios or anything. And that's in part because we don't do any refined carbs. Um, but it's, it's also just by doing that, I find that they're, I think a lot of the reason that kids are picky is that they don't experience being hungry. Um, and so I like to be sitting down for dinner and the kids are like, oh my God, I want to eat dinner. If I've been feeding them snacks all day, they, they're, they're not going to enjoy dinner in the same way. 
So I, I really believe in very minimal. And we, we always have big bowls of fruit around. Um, they can always have milk and water. You know, it's not like there's no snacks for them, but I don't make snacking available. And I, I find that then they eat with a lot more enthusiasm and they're more open to trying more things than on those days when they've been at playdates or at, you know, the little like daycare center that I drop them up sometimes where they get fed goldfish all day, then they're just not really hungry for dinner. I am 100% in alignment with you on that. I think I've always said hunger is an incredible teacher. And um, I think you're right. Kids are much more likely to try new foods when they have natural hunger. And it's great for kids to experience hunger and to learn to eat when they're hungry. Um, We're the same way. We don't have refined carbs or sugar in our house because there's no biological need for those. I mean, carbohydrates, certainly eat some fruit, eat some sweet potatoes, but we don't have a need for refined food at all or for refined sugar at all. So I know that sounds extreme to a lot of people, um, but like you, I'm not the mom who's like uber controlling my kids' diets when they're not in my house. If they go to a friend's house and they want to make a choice, it's 100% their choice to make. But in our house where I'm responsible for the food, I'm going to have really high quality nutrient dense food and that's what I'm going to feed them. And I think that's an important metric that you don't have to take, like, it's not that they are never going to eat these foods, but in my house, I'm certainly not going to have them. I also find too, when we do make cookies, I'm like, eat all you want. You know, like I never want to have there be guidelines around things that like have their always, it's like when there's, there's only cookies like once a month, you know, or twice a month, maybe we'll make them with coconut sugar and really good chocolate and they're like so delicious. But if my kids want to eat 10, they will. But the thing is that now that they're, they self-regulate well, they'll have two and then they'll want one the next day. You know, so it's like, I really try to have it be like when we do have something that's like a little bit different or sweeter, knock yourself out, you know, and, and go crazy. And I just never want to have the sense of like, you know, I, I think you have a big bucket of pretzels, big bucket of goldfish. I've seen this in, in friends places. And it's like this constant thing of like, not now. And you're constantly regulating it. And it's actually a source of anxiety and stress in the home, you know, to have like these sort of like limitless bad foods available. Um, and the same thing goes with Halloween candy. I'm like, get it all, eat all you want, make yourself sick. And then a day later, I'm tossing it all out. Like, it's like, but go crazy while you, while it's there. So I don't want to have to be the, the food police. You know, I want to, I want to teach my kids a natural appetite. Another, another thing that I've um, noticed too, is that the, the whole act of preparing foods with my kids has helped them appreciate home cooking more. You know, so involving them, like they make the pancake batter and this morning we made waffles and my, they do it together. Like they actually, they really enjoy, I mean, that's sort of a no brainer, but they, the, one of the upsides of cooking from scratch is that it's more fun for the kids. You know, there's more parts and pieces. And um, what we do in our house is I have everything organized like in baskets. So it's like the little basket with vanilla and baking soda and baking powder and then the flowers in a tub. So I make it easy for them to get the parts and to participate in that, which they really enjoy. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard to, you know, I, I was so afraid, Katie, when I, when I had my, I was talking about my first, it was like my terror that I was going to have a picky child. And then my daughter ate everything. It was amazing. And when she was probably three, I did my first like mom date within, within her best friends at the time, her mom. And we went to a pizza restaurant and I, you know, we got the pizzas and then this mom brought out like four containers and one had watermelon chunks and one had goldfish and one had cheese sticks and one had like apple slices. And I was like, what the, what's going on here? And she said, Oh, you know, so this child really, she, she's really picky. And so I have to bring this or else she won't eat. And I'm like, okay, I'm feeling, I felt so, I felt empathy for her, but I also felt so relieved because I realized, Oh, I'm never going to have a picky eater. <laughs> Cause, 
this isn't, and I completely get that there are some picky eaters that are born that way or maybe allergy related, but I think by giving our children limitless choice, um, I mean, imagine if you went to work every day and sitting on your desk was like all of your favorite foods, right? That were prepared for you with love. And they were there all day long. I mean, I'd gain 20 pounds in a week, you know? So would you. Um, it, it's not feasible to have people offering us our favorite, most highly processed, delicious things all the time that we want. You know, in this case, the mom was doing her best job and brought things that were pretty pretty healthy and fresh, but it still meant that the, the, the daughter wasn't didn't have to eat the pizza and try something new, didn't have to try the pasta, and she could go on and say, oh, I, I don't, you know, I only eat watermelon cubes. You know, it, it, it's a, it, it can be a choice. And I, I just encourage people to let the child experience a little hunger, let them experience a little delight and joy with finding something that they do like. And that, that hunger also teaches cravings and, and teaches the concept of satiety, you know? Exactly. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I think that's such an important point and um, such a great point to start. And I can't believe our time is flying by so quickly, but I want to make sure we talk about a little bit more about your farm and also all your restaurants and just all the amazing innovative stuff you guys are doing. So kind of give us a roundup of what the farms are like, how many cattle you have, and then what the restaurants are like. Absolutely. So our our farm um, is uh, just shy of 30,000 acres in Northern California. It's all organic certified. We have 3,000 beef, about 2,000 lambs, 2,000 pigs, and we produce about 50,000 chickens every year, along with um, goose, duck, and turkey in smaller quantities. All of our meats are sold through our own channels, which we have six restaurant butcher shops, one in New York and five in California. We also sell through select retail partners. So currently we're selling through Air One, which is a, a great grocery store in Southern California. We're expanding right now with grocery partners in Northern California and New York. So we're looking to be in probably 100 stores by this time next year with all of our meats as well. We also sell on belcampo.com, direct from our own slaughterhouse. We have our own USDA slaughterhouse adjacent to our farm that's certified humane and certified organic meat processing plant. And so we sell belcampo.com. You can go online and it gets shipped to you directly from our plant, from our meat plant in Wairica, California. Or you can go to williamsonoma.com and they sell some really awesome like gifting bundles as well with Bel Campo. But our, our claim to fame is the, I'd say we're the, the first and only truly vertically integrated farm to table meat operation with animal wellness as its core. I consider Bel Campo fundamentally an animal wellness company providing optimally healthy meats in support of optimal human nutrition. And really, you know, the why of it and all this complexity, man, we've built something insanely complex that's also fun. You know, like this Christmas, I'm launching a line of animal fat-based moisturizer um, and, and beard balm and things that are just like, a, I actually developed this line when I was pregnant with my second um, and got kind of freaked out by the creams and things that I use um, and started to make my own using animal fat. And now we're selling them. But like, so we can do neat little line extensions like that. Um, because of having the whole animal. Uh, but we, you know, we started from a ranch uh, in 2012. And the idea was like, great, how do we get this product to the consumer in a way that honors it through the whole supply chain? And you can't ship it to a massive consolidated slaughterhouse, you know, where thousands of animals are killed in an hour. There's no traceability. Um, there's the animal handling processes are inhumane. 
So that was, okay, let's build a slaughterhouse. And then how do we get it into retail? And it's build a restaurant. So let's give people a completely owned supply chain so they can have absolute comfort in the quality of this product. And it's been so cool, too. You know, we're Best Burger in L.A. from L.A. Magazine, Best in SF from SF Magazine. Like, we get, we've been winning on taste for years. Um, again, that, that's sort of been the neat upside. You know, we started this around wellness and doing the right thing. And then, wow, you do the right thing for the environment, for people, for animals, and it tastes a heck of a lot better. So that was a nice kind of, like, positive upside of it, that our, our meat is, is consistently renowned for just tasting really awesome. I can vouch for that. I've been to the LA restaurant and the burger is amazing. So is the steak. Um, definitely want to get back and try a lot more things, but I'll make sure that links to all of your websites are in the show notes. So if you guys are in or near any of those places, you can find the restaurants or you can find the website. Yeah. And let's hook you up with a discount code for your audience as well. Amazing. So yeah, you guys check the show notes at wellnessmama.fm for that discount code. And I'll also post on social media. But um, yeah, I can definitely vouch for the quality. It's amazing and delicious. And I love that it's run by a female founder and mom who is just really pioneering in this world. I think it's incredible. Selfishly, there's another question I love to ask toward the end of interviews, because I'm always looking for new book ideas. And that is if there's a book or number of books that have really impacted your life. If so, what are they and why? First book would be On Food and Cooking by Harold McGee. Uh, it's an oldie but goodie, published in the 80s, and it was the first book that really got me thinking about the science of, of food and the microbiology of nutrition and food. So it's On Food and Cooking by Harold McGee. Um, and then Fergus Henderson's book, uh, Meat, the River Cottage Meat book, is amazing uh, in talking about just grass-fed operations and how different they are. Uh, that That's that's um, really amazing uh, just introduction to free-range everything. On the other side, there's an incredible book called The Meat Racket, racket like tennis racket, meat racket. And that's about the whole environmental and economic system around how Tyson farms its chickens. And what I learned from that is just how involved the USDA is from a financing perspective with all these farms and also that these confinement operations are are almost exclusively now run by Southeast Asian immigrants who are really locked in to a lose-lose situation from an economic perspective with, you know, in over their heads with debt, um, owing money to Tyson and only having one client who's also Tyson. So it was amazing to me just thinking about the kind of the, the bad tentacles of the conventional operations. Um, it just gave me a sense of, wow, this isn't just about animals. This is human wellness and, and human stability is being threatened by the confinement system. So if anybody wants a real downer, I also recommend the meat racket. It's pretty depressing, but it's also just like kind of blew my mind to read about how the system actually works. Love it. I will make sure all of those are linked in the show notes as well. Um, I think this has been such a fun episode and such an important topic. And I love, like I said, multiple times, I love that you are providing such quality products and education. I think this is a really important topic, especially for moms and children. And I love that you are leading the way for this. So thank you so much for all your work and for your time and being here today. You know, it all depends on people like you making a different choice. You know, I can offer the different choice, but people have to make the choice. So I'm just really grateful that you're using your platform to support me being able to share my story and what we're trying to do. I love it. Well, thank you again for your time. And thanks to all of you for listening and sharing one of your most valuable resources, your time with us today. We're both so grateful that you did. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. 
If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.